Hi, my loves. How are we doing? I just need to take a second to get a temperature check of the room. How are we all feeling? Are we white knuckling it through this holiday season? Are we surviving and thriving? I'm doing a little bit of a mixture. It depends on the day, depends on the second, honestly. But here we are at the beginning of December amidst the holiday season when, honestly, a lot of us miss people. It's a season that can make you feel sad or lonely and deeply long for people that are no longer here. So before we start today's episode, I just want to take a collective deep breath. And no, I swear this is not turning into like a meditation class led by none other than the most unhinged person in the world, me. But I just feel like grief is such a tough topic. It makes so many of us inherently uncomfortable for many reasons, but one of them being how final death is. And I think that it's a subject that we could all talk more about because grieving is something that's inevitable in the human experience, unfortunately. And so many people that we know will grieve and we ourselves will grieve. So the better prepared that we can be, and I say prepared loosely because nothing can prepare you for losing someone that you love, but the more that we can talk about it and normalize this concept that is, like I said, inevitable, the better. So today I invited none other than grief advocate Marissa Renee Lee on the show, and boy, did she deliver. I mean, I don't have enough good things to say about this woman. She is so knowledgeable and wise about all flavors and layers of grief. This episode is such a gift from her and has so many lessons in it for all of us, not only those of us who have lost people and are grieving, but also for those of us who love people who have lost someone and want so desperately to show up for them and say the right and respectful thing, but often don't really know how. So I'm so excited that we have this episode amidst the holiday season when, quite frankly, it couldn't be more relevant. So let me tell you a little bit about Marissa before we get started. Marissa Renee Lee is a called-upon grief advocate, entrepreneur, and best-selling author of Grief is Love, Living with Loss. So let me just T.O. for a second about this revolutionary book. This book, and I said it to Marissa several times in our interview, this book should be mandatory reading for everyone on the planet, if you ask me. It is such a profound and powerful way of explaining grief, explaining multiple different kinds of grief, and explaining so many parts of the human experience that we honestly may not even know to constitute as grief. She talks about her own experience with losing her mom and her experience with infertility and a miscarriage and how those different grieving processes affected her life and so many other experiences in between. Marissa was deemed the friend we all wished we had in times of need by Elaine Welteroth, and I stand behind that 100%. Marissa is able to utilize research-based advice and wisdom to help others navigate the complicated and often dark emotions we face when experiencing loss, offering unique insights to women and Black communities. In addition to her work in the grief space, Marissa is a former appointee in the Obama White House and CEO of Beacon Advisors, which is a mission-driven consulting firm primarily focused on racial equity. She is a rabble-rouser of social healing And I know that so much of what she said will resonate with you deeply. But what I loved most about her and in this interview is just how she doesn't shy away from talking about the hard parts of grief. For example, she uses terms like dead and dying. We're compelled to use things like passed away or passed on and use euphemisms in an effort to help those that are grieving. And we avoid those harsh or hard terms. And I love how she subtly helps to normalize or destigmatize this idea of grief because the truth is, unfortunately, grieving is inevitable in this lifetime. And as we discussed in our interview, if you have ever loved someone in this lifetime, you will grieve someone in this lifetime. And while I can't promise that we'll ever get more comfortable with talking about grief, I think the more we talk about it and normalize it and the less we stigmatize those of us going through it, the better. And I just hope that this episode helps you as much as it helped me. And I can't wait for you to hear it because Marissa is really something else. So without further ado, here is Marissa Renee Lee. Hi, Marissa. Hi, Jade. It's so nice to meet you. I feel like this is a very appropriate conversation for us to be having with the season that it is. Yes, I agree 100%. I was just 
telling someone that this time of year, like I definitely feel the grief more Mm -hmm. um, for better or worse. You know, my my mom was a big holidays person. And so I can't help but think of her a lot this time of year. So yes, I agree with you 100%. Yeah. You're constantly reminded of family and traditions and the way that your life was when this person was around. And it's kind of like everywhere you turn. And yet we're kind of supposed to be we're expected to function normally and like, aren't you happy? It's, you know, it's Christmas and it's all of those things, but that can mean, especially when you've lost someone, you can, you know, there's this duality of experience where it is a happy time of year, but you're also missing someone terribly. Yeah. So I I would love to explore that with you. So let's start with the basics. How did you get started as a grief advocate? (laughs) Unfortunately, it started with an encounter with grief. I was, I was 13, I think, when I like really first encountered grief and just mm-hmm. like didn't realize it at the time. Um, my mom was an otherwise like healthy, you know, PTA, Sunday school teacher, like on every field trip, worked wow. full time type of woman. And then one day she just got sick and she never got better. And it would take mm-hmm. doctors years and years to figure it out. But it turned out she had multiple sclerosis. So right. I grew up with the grief of serious long-term illness like in our family and then as i was graduating from college she started having like a just a lot more health issues you know in and out of the hospital my entire senior spring and you know i'd kind of go back and forth between parties on campus and finishing my senior thesis and spending time at the hospital with mom and the week that I graduated, they figured out what the problem was. Um, mm. It turned out on top of multiple sclerosis, my mother actually had stage four breast cancer. And wow. so the combination of things was definitely like terrifying, overwhelming. And with both the MS and the cancer, you know, we knew that they weren't things that were ever going to fully go away. Like her cancer was not curable from the beginning. And so I ended up taking a year off, like helping my mom and dad figure out how to navigate this very complicated health situation. And then when we stopped seeking treatment for my mom for both of those diseases, I started doing everything I could to prepare for her to die. Mm. You know, like I knew what was going to happen. I knew it was imminent. You know, when she stopped undergoing treatment for her cancer, you know, the cancer was in her lungs. It was in her brain. Like it, you know, it was, it was a mess. Like her body was completely falling apart on the inside. And so I had my spreadsheet, you know, what things does mom want for her funeral? Where does she want to die? Who does she want to be a pallbearer at the funeral? You know, like all the different things. And then trying to hold on to that control of it. Yeah. And then also like, what can I do to make whatever time we have left as positive and fun for her as possible? Because like, you know, she was getting ready to turn 49 and we knew she was going to be dead soon. And then I had a separate category that was like, okay, like, how do I get ready to grieve? You know, what does that look like? And I did research and I read books and I really believed that because I was so prepared, you know, because I was so on it, that like, it was going to be a lot easier. Like, that's truly what I, what I thought until it happened. And it was like a punch in the face. And I will just never forget. I don't even know. And I'm a writer. I think about grief all the time. Mm-hmm. But I don't I don't really have words that feel strong enough or adequate enough to describe the level of devastation. And I added to my pain by judging myself you know, feeling like, you know, you were prepared, like you did everything you could. You had a great relationship with your mom. You got to spend all this time with her. Like, why are you so sad? You know, parents die all the time. At some point, we're all going to lose someone we love, especially a parent. Like that's like sort of the normal order of things in life. And, you know, I was like, sure, you were young and she was young, but like, what's the big deal? And looking back, it's obviously completely insane. But at some point, about six months into the loss, I just, I hit a wall and I said, you know what? I don't think there's anything wrong with me. Like, I don't think that I should still be shaming myself for having all of these feelings about losing my mom. Like, I think where the problem sits is in how we talk about 
grief and loss and trauma and healing and what those things are supposed to look like. And so I decided back in August of 2008 that I was going to write a book about grief that would not be sad and depressing and that would be a New York Times bestseller. Um, And that is how grief (laughs) is love. And my role as a grief advocate was initially born. Wow. So I was telling Marissa before we started that I think this her book, Grief is Love, should be mandatory reading for everyone, truly, like whether you've experienced grief or not. Like it's honestly even more helpful, yes. I mean, just as helpful to people who know someone or, who, you know, who have a friend who is dealing with grief or all of us are going to experience grief at some point. That is kind of what makes it so terrifying is that it is inevitable. If you yep. have loved in this life, you will theoretically grieve in this life. 100%. So there's so much to unpack in your story. And first, I want to just kind of get a timeline. So when your mom was diagnosed with MS when you were 13, so then that probably was a a specific flavor of grief. And I I use the word flavor of grief because there's also that loss of innocence that comes with having a sick parent. Oh, I love that. Yes, 100%. That's a great way to describe it. And also the juxtaposition of the person that you used to have as your mom yep. and the person that now occupies that role, you know, and that you probably have to take on some caretaker roles. It's yep. just, it's not as Garden of Eden innocence as it once was, you know, yep. to an extent. No, you nailed it. And then you were 22, right? When your mom was diagnosed with breast cancer? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. How were those dif- those grieving processes different? Was one like, okay, she, this is question. just a new normal? And when was the other, there's a timeline on this now, an expiration date? Yeah. So, I mean, when I, when I was 13 and she first got sick, I didn't, I didn't know what to even call all of the different feelings I was having. You know, like I didn't have any sort of framework around grief. I didn't realize how big and life changing even that experience with MS was in and of itself, you know, but like to your point, my childhood and adolescence went from this very carefree, you know, do whatever you want type existence, which was awesome, obviously, to something just much more serious. You know, both of my parents did their best to preserve fun and joy and like enough of that like sort of normal childhood experience for both me and my sister. But at the end of the day, like we were a four person family my mom suddenly became very sick and couldn't be the caretaker that she'd been for the rest of us. And I should add, I also have a younger sister who suffers with bipolar disorder. So, you know, it was like half of the family had something that the rest of us had to like help support and figure out how to deal with. And it was, it was a lot. And I, I wish, I wish that someone had forced me to go to therapy back then, you know, like that 13, 14 year old girl, because I didn't know what to do with all of those feelings. So I mostly just ignored them um, and committed to doing the thing that I could control, which was, you know, I'm going to be the best possible kid, you know, type A overachiever so that I can give my parents something positive in this like difficult life that they're managing. Um, which led to Harvard, you know, like it, right. it worked. <laughs> right. It usually um, does, but at what human cost, you know? Well, yeah, that's, that's a, that's a real <laughs> question. So yeah, so like, that's what I committed to doing. And I, I didn't realize how much grief there was in that childhood phase, like truly until I started working on grief as love. And like having to go back and think through, you know, as you're describing things that you hope are going to be relevant for somebody else, like you really have to do some work. Uh, so this right. book required a lot of therapy. Oh, I can't even imagine. Oh my God. It was, it was, it was <laughs> wild. And then, you know, when I was 22, and this is also something that I didn't really reckon with until I went to write the book, but, you know, you're graduating from college, like that's a big life moment and like a big life change in and of itself. And at the same time as that was happening, I was trying to figure out what to do about the fact that my mom was going to be dead soon. You know, it was stage four cancer from the beginning, spread throughout her skeletal system on top of multiple sclerosis that she'd had since I was 13 years old. Like 
there was no way that she was going to, I, I knew when I was 22 years old, I would be lucky if my mom was still around for my 26th, 27th birthdays mm. like that, you know, like, mm-hmm. and to have that, that very sudden realization that somebody who is foundational to who you are is no longer going to be in the world soon ish. Right. Like it's, it's hard. And was that a truth that you could share with your sister or your dad? Or did you all feel like each other was too fragile to get in on that? Yeah, more the latter. And, you know, my sister at the time was in a very difficult place in terms Mm -hmm. of um, her mental health. So, like, I definitely was not in a position where I felt like I could say anything to her. And my dad is an amazing person, but he's Mm -hmm. also the most unrealistic, Mm -hmm. optimistic person. (laughs) Right. God bless (laughs) him. You know, and like had been with my mom since he was 15, 16 years old, you know, so like, like he was not in a place where he could really face reality. Um, And he stayed like that until like the day she dies, basically. The only person who I so I had some friends who I could talk to. Okay. But even with friends, it was weird and hard because we were all so young. Right. Mortality isn't on anyone's mind at, the, yeah, at that age. No, no. And like it just – like my friends did an amazing job supporting me from the time she was diagnosed until she died and afterward. But it was just a really weird experience for all of us. You know, like they're starting to lose parents now. And even now, it's it's early. So, yeah. So it was – it was hard. I, I was able to have some honest conversations with my mom, especially mm-hmm. the last year or two. Like, you know, we were very clear about what was going to happen. Um, mm-hmm. And we were honest about that with each other, which helped. Mm-hmm. But other than that, it was, yeah, we were kind of on our own. Did your mom tell you to go on with your life as normal? Yeah. But at the same time, know that there's an expiration on this relationship that is paramount to who you are and your foundation. So how did you balance both of those emotions? And what I relate to so much about what you said is that you tried to, in a way, control like, okay, I'm going to prepare for this grief. I I know it's coming. So that's just what we do as humans. If we know something's coming, we try to, you know, put up all the bumpers and, you know, protect and padding and protection so that we don't get hurt as badly. And with something like grief, and I love how you relate it to love because just like you can't prepare yourself to fall in love, you can't prepare yourself to grieve, right? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. So, I mean, it's a really hard space to live in because no matter what's going on, you, you know where you're headed. Mm. And, and, and to hold space to like constantly reckon with that reality that someone who is, you know, like you said, foundational to who you are Mm -hmm. is going to be gone soon, but you still are expected to, you know, first of all, do the basics of life, like hold down a job. Like if you have kids, take care of them, you know, whatever. And also try to create opportunities for joy. Like it's, it is weird and it is uncomfortable and it's miserable, um, honestly, but it's also, I I felt like it was the only option, you know, Mm -hmm. like I didn't want to just give in to being miserable all the time. And I knew that until she was gone, anytime I was able to experience joy like my mom would experience joy. So while there were lots of trips and, you know, things that were canceled over the years, for sure, there are still these moments, especially closer to the end. You know, my la- my last birthday party with my mom alive, uh, my girlfriends through this amazing, like super thoughtful 25th birthday, like dinner, you know, we're like dancing in New York City, like doing the mm. whole thing until I don't even, God only knows what time. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> and then they also, like a couple of the closer girlfriends who'd, you know, mostly gone to college with me, known my mom then since they were 18 as well. They organized a trip to like come up to my hometown from the city and take me out for a meal and visit with my mom in the hospital. So it was like this constant balancing act. You know, it was like Friday night, we're, drinking until two o'clock in the morning. And then Saturday, we're at the hospital. 
Right. And that was that was my twenties. Like it it was it was crazy. You know, I was working on Wall Street and wow. you know doing all of that at the height of the financial crisis while also taking care of a dying parent. Wow. That probably color, I mean, obviously that balancing act started in your 20s, but, you know, probably carried on until the rest of your life. You know what I mean? Now with every joyful experience, you still probably feel the loss. Yeah. And it's been interesting to see like when and where it comes up Mm. because there are the things that you expect. So like, you know, my mom dies. I just turned 25. I was incredibly single. Um, And so like, of course I knew, you know, someday, hopefully, you know, God willing, I would find somebody, they wouldn't suck. Uh, we would get married and she wouldn't be there for that. You know, like that, like there are just those things that you know. And so you're like, oh, my wedding day is probably going to be kind of sad. But then you can get surprised because my wedding day, I was not sad at all. Like I was like, she's here. This is awesome. I'm going to have the best time ever. I love parties. Like, you know, like wow. I was like, this is, this is amazing. Like, I love this guy. This is going to be great. But what was hard for me was the wedding planning. Yes. I love this story about the napkins. <laughs> I love, I love, we have to talk about this because this is so real. It's like you expect the big moments, but it bites yeah. you in the ass in the, in the details. That's exactly what it was. Can you tell us that story? Yeah. So in the book, we call it napkin gate. Um, (laughs) But I was meticulously planning this like Hudson Valley farm to table custom everything wedding. And that meant being in like every single detail of every single piece of it. Much like it sounds like your mom was. Yes. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And like at one point, I was really proud of myself because I had found uh, the napkins that we wanted to use for our wedding. And I realized, oh, I could buy them from this like restaurant supply store. And that was less expensive than renting them. And then if I bought them, obviously we would then like have them forever and we could use them for other things. I don't know what I thought I was going to do with 150 (laughs) of these like restaurant napkins for the rest of my life, but I was really proud of myself. And I went to my fiance and I was like, listen, like, look what I figured out. And he was like, okay, like, what is like, why do I care basically? And I got really mad and I was, you know, you're not helping enough and you're not doing that. You're not supporting me. Like, like you haven't done anything for this wedding. Like, but like, I mean, I just went off on the man. Um, And then very quickly realized that I wasn't actually mad at him. Like he was never going to care about these napkins. Like, period or most of the other details because that's just not who I married like he'll care that it looks beautiful and nice on our wedding but like he had three requests for the entire you know three-day wedding he had three requests and that was all he cared about (laughs) and the napkins were not on that list what I really missed was my mom like the other person who was going to care about the napkins, who was going to care about the custom designed save the dates with a vintage mm. map of the Hudson Valley and like this tree that we had created for the invitation. Like that was the person who was going to care about that stuff. And she was gone. And I I lost my shit a little bit. Um, but once the night, the I don't want to say nice thing about grief, but the more you get accustomed to living with it, the quicker you're able to recognize it. And also, I think the faster you get over time at figuring out what you need to, I don't want to say replace that person because you're never going to replace them, but like, what do you need to be okay? And I love how you talk about like redefining what okay means, you know, in in your new, in your new normal, because that's the truth is like, you're looking for that person. Yeah, you're, and you're not going to get that. And there's nothing that anyone can say or do, and that can be a lonely feeling. But I feel like there's just this repetition of you realizing that over and over and over again, that yep. like this person isn't coming back. No, they're not here. And so what are you going to do about it? Like, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, it it is on you on me you know the griever Mm -hmm. to figure it out because no one else can do that work for you and so you know we've been dealing with a bunch of grief in our family recently my grandfather passed away a couple months ago um and 
he was, I, I like to say it's sad, but not tragic. Like he right. was 101. Um, oh, we were very, blessing. very, you know, to Amazing. be almost 40 and to have a living grandma. Like I was very lucky. Amazing. Yes. But we each need different things mm. in order to be our own version of okay when it comes to grief. And really only you can decide what that thing is. And sometimes it's as simple as like, you just need a minute to acknowledge what you've lost and like who isn't here anymore sometimes it's you know you need a full spa day to just chill and just you know kind of give yourself a break sometimes i just need a nap you're preaching to the choir i love a nap it makes such a big difference so yeah so i'm all about like figuring out for you what is going to make you okay with the situation in the absence of your loved one like that's what i think living with loss is actually all about Right. And knowing that there isn't an end date. Not that I've found. Right. Like in movies, we see like, oh, okay, then they grieve for six months and then they go off on a vacation yeah. or whatever and their life starts again yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And they're totally fine. Yeah. Right. No, that's not, I do not think that's the way it works. And that's for me, writing Grief is Love was about two things. Like one, normalizing the real experience of grief and loss. And I say real experience because to your point, like we see so much in TV, you know, on movies, even in other books where somebody dies, everybody goes to the funeral, a couple weeks later, everybody's good. And like, that's just not, that's not true. Right. And so everything in this book, while yes, it's my story, it's also all grounded in the leading research and data around grief and loss and healing. Mm. And and like, I want people to have that real information so that they know that there's nothing to be ashamed of, that there's nothing wrong with them. You know, you're not broken if you're still having a hard time and it's been months or years and you're Mm -hmm. still having a hard time sometimes about someone you love who's no longer here. Like you are normal, you are human. And then the other big thing for me was making sure people understand and start to think about and have conversations around what healing requires you know what do you need in order to really live with the horrible hard challenging things that happen in life mm-hmm. yeah i think like as a you know as a species resilience is one of the greatest gifts that we've been given to an extent totally. Makes it, you know we can move on from things and trauma and all of that but it's also does us such a big disservice because we lose perspective or we think that people around us that are grieving, we forget that this is a lifelong sentence. And I don't mean that in such a negative way, but I just mean that this is now a part of their life. This is a part of our life. And this isn't something that we necessarily can rebound from like so many other experiences in life. Yeah, there's no, I mean, like I said, I am now almost 15 years out Mm -hmm. Um, My mom died February 28th, 2008. And I, I definitely don't, for the most part, like, feel the volume of pain that I felt in like the weeks and months immediately following her death. Mm -hmm. But are there still times where I'm just completely sidelined by the loss? Yes, like this spring was really hard. Like, be like working full time, being on tour for a grief book, which meant, you know, people constantly coming over to me and sharing their grief, which I'm always happy to receive, but it's still hard. You know, like I, I feel for every single person who shares their story with me. And then personally having to reckon with my first Mother's Day as a mom after, you know, five years of trying and IVF and ultimately adoption with the fact that, you know, like my mom's not here, like it just, it was just a lot to carry, you know? And, and I, I had a total meltdown before we had to be at a book event in DC. And I remember, I remember my husband and son coming into the bathroom. I was like on the floor of the shower crying like a baby. And my husband was like, um, you know, are you going to make it? Like the babysitter's going to be here soon. Uh, You know, you have to be like dressed and like made up and you, you're on the floor of the shower. And I was like, yes, I was like, I'll be fine. I was like, I just need more time. Just like, 
basically like leave me alone get out of my face you and that kid like disappear yeah never want to see you again and I I managed to get myself together Mm -hmm. but it you know there there are those moments where it's just like the feelings are too much and you have to give yourself space to grieve and I think that goes on forever Absolutely. I really want to get into anniversaries and holidays and stuff and, you you know, talk about that in a minute. But first, I want to talk about something that I've noticed in my own relationships. One of my best friends, her mom died around when she was 22, when you were graduating college. And it's so interesting. I wonder if you did this at all. Did you find yourself, because I think there can be so much grief in just the amount of days that have passed since you've seen that person, Mm. right? Because that just means that it's been that long since you've yeah. held them, seen them, talked to them, all of that stuff. So I imagine just the days is that just feel so long. Did you find yourself living in a form of 2008 for a prolonged period of time? Meaning, did you maybe keep people in your life that maybe you wouldn't have, but just because they knew your mom, you'd have them? That's interesting. Or not wanting to meet new people for the fear that they wouldn't know your mom? Yeah. So for me, the first thing that came to my mind when you asked that question is like the first, I mean, over a year, like, so first of all, I I was there when my mom died. Um, and it was, there was, it was a little traumatizing, you know, like I was talking to her, she laughed at a joke, collapsed, had a seizure and was gone within a few hours, you know, like it was not like, it was not pretty or pleasant, but um, it was at home, which was what she wanted, and it was quick, which was what we all had hoped for um, fundamentally. But it was still like really hard to witness. And you know, I because I was there, like I knew the exact time that she died. And so for me, like that time of day became like a thing, like it, without even realizing what time. You know, I would always end up looking at the clock around that time and like just start to feel a little bit ill, and like that continued daily for months for sure and then for a really long time the day of the month you know like it was the 28th like every time the 28th would pass to be like oh my god a month has gone by it doesn't even feel like it's been five minutes like this is terrible you know whatever Mm -hmm. um so there was a lot of that like truly like the 28th of every month was hard 5 30 p.m was always hard still now even if i'm like doing something completely different or having a great day. Like, I'll be honest, I don't remember, I don't remember what I was doing last year around the anniversary of her death, but I never work. And a couple years ago, I started trying to plan stuff that like we would enjoy, you know, like, oh, let's go out to dinner at this restaurant or, you know, go to this spa or whatever. Um, but the one thing that I have realized is at some point, on February 28th, like I am going to have some kind of a meltdown. Like, so, so if I make plans, I have to be comfortable, like crying in a restaurant or crying during the massage or, you know, whatever it is, Um, because it's still, it's definitely still a thing. And then in terms of keeping people around, you know, I will say yes. Like there is, there was this, there was this part of me that, and I don't even know if it was as much like oh, my mom knew that person or if it was more, I I can't deal with anything else that feels challenging or complex or, you know, like those, those like interpersonal dynamics that can ultimately lead to not being friends with someone, you know, or not being as close friends. Like I couldn't, I like didn't have the capacity to deal with any of that. Um, so like there's one relationship in particular that definitely lingered for longer than 82. And there was also like a guy I dated that I let linger for longer than it needed to, you right. know, like, the, like right. there were those things. Cause I was just like, I just can't deal with anything, can't deal with anything else that even seems like it might be like the tiniest bit hard right now. Right. So as you mentioned, you were 26 when you lost your mom. And that is, of course, extremely, extremely young to lose anyone, but to lose someone that important in your life. And of course, your friends were also 26 or around there, and they were extremely young. Did they ever struggle with how to handle your grief or struggle with what to say? And were you ever frustrated with their inability to fully understand the depth of your grief? I think where people struggled and 
where I also struggled was around the passage of time and the level of pain that continues to exist. Like I, for me, the first year after she died, like it's like a fog, you know, like there's so many things that happened. There's so many things that happened in general in my early twenties that friends will talk about now. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Isn't that wild? And they're like, they're like, no, you don't remember. Like we were there, like you were there, you talked to so-and-so or like, you know, you brought such and such guy or, you know, and I'd be like, I don't remember. I don't remember. Like, like just complete black hole from the impact of grief and loss and trauma on the brain. Um, So I, and like, because, because I was both so young and because I didn't have the right language and also because I just didn't feel comfortable articulating how much pain I was still in because for a really long time, I thought there was something wrong with me for having that much pain. Like I wasn't as supported as I wish I had been, or as I think I even could have been six months, nine months, et cetera, after the loss a year after, you know, because people are like, you know, we've shown up, we think you're fine. You're working, you're still running your charity. But like, I was barely functioning, Mm -hmm. like daily panic attacks for months every day when I would go to work five days a week. Right. And that just became your new normal. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like I would get off the subway, the crazy heartbeat and like sweaty palms and having a hard time catching my breath and like like feeling like there's just like a fire in my chest like that would start as I would leave the subway every morning and I could get myself to the basement of the bank where I worked and I would have a complete meltdown down there every morning and when I was like starting to come out of it and like could catch my breath a little bit more I would email or text my one friend and the only other woman who worked in banking with me. And she would come down with a Xanax from my desk and a soy latte and cookie from like the coffee shop across wow. the street. And like, that's what we did. And like, I, I literally, because that first year is such a black hole, I had to ask her how long I lived like that for when I was writing Grief is Love, because I, I just... I, I, I had no idea. I was like, was it weeks or was it months? And she was like, oh, no, it was months. Wow. It changes how you see time also. Yeah. Wow. That's so fascinating. You know, I and I ask you this because I know better that like I know what the answer will be probably now. But I'm wondering when you were in your 20s, because that is such a delicate time and to lose yeah. your mom at that time is really such a unique experience. Was there ever a version of you that grieved the version of you that existed before your mom was sick? Oh, Lord. And that kind of said, oh, my God, the woman I could be if I didn't have this cross to bear. Oh, Lord. Yes. So many times. Mm -hmm. There was a moment where I felt a lot of resentment before she died. Like this would have been fall, maybe fall of 07, like after either fall of 07 or early 08. So like when we were toward the end and it was just really bad and depressing and hard. And at the time, Barack Obama was running for president and I saw him on TV and I just remember, and I, I wrote it in my journal and I wrote about it in a book I contributed to a few years ago called Modern Lost. I was angry and like, I was resentful of all of those kids that like, you know, these young people could be there on his campaign with him. I'm like, that's where I belong. And I, I, at the same time, I knew I was exactly where I needed to be. Um, but definitely resentful at that point. You know, I think so much of my striving in childhood and adolescence was about, I'm not going to let this get the best of me and like my plans for my life. And that continues to be how I operate to this day. Like something hard happens, I give myself more space now to just grieve and have feelings and whatever than I did before. But I still am like, okay, like, like you have to like soldier on, like power through, like what's your game plan? Like what's your strategy for getting, getting through this? Right. So that brings me to the next question of <laughs> the seven stage or five stages. Like there's so many different people. Think Bullshit there are five, stages. How about right. we call it that? Exactly. So before your mom died, did you use those stages to prepare you? Oh, yeah. I was reading. I was on a work trip for the bank that I was wearing for at the time okay. to Marco Island, Florida. And I remember sitting on the beach there 
reading Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's On Death and Dying. Mm. And because, you know, like I said, I was super single when my mom died. Uh, One of my girlfriends had actually come on the work trip because, you know, again, you're in your inner 20s and someone's going to pay for you to go to a bank meeting at the beach. Of course, you're friends. (laughs) Tag along. Yes. And she saw me reading it and she was like, I remember her making fun of me. Like, she was like, you're such a loser. Like, what are you doing? Because she believed that my mom was going to be okay and that we Mm. had more time. And I was like, no, she's going to die soon and I need to get ready. So that was absolutely my framework. And what I have to say about the stages is this. First of all, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, brilliant and amazing. But Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's original research was not for Jade or Marissa. That research was based on people who are dying themselves. So those stages, yes, those stages should have been applied, you know, to like my mom, you know, what she went through preparing herself to die. Like that's what that book was originally written about and who that book was written for. Yeah. Because when you know that you're like, because it makes so much sense. You're like, wait a minute. It, first of all, it does make more sense. Yeah. Second of all, it's like, why have people been applying this outdated framework to a completely different situation? Like, that's not like people are suffering because they're like, oh, you know, I'm stuck in anger or I'm still bargaining right. or I skipped over As whatever. As if it's like the 12 steps. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, and that's the other thing. Like when you hear stages, you know, especially as a mom to like a small child, like you think of stages in an order, like the developmental mm-hmm. stages that you look for, you know, what we just took our kids to the pediatrician yesterday. Like you look for things that come in some sort of sequence. There's no sequence with the stages. Like even she said, you know, this was not for you basically. And she also is quoted saying, and if you wanted to use it, in this grief sense, you also need to know that there's no linear path. Like everyone has their own path when it comes to grief. Wow. I mean, the anguish that people could have been saved from knowing this, you know, and just like the amount of pressure you put on yourself to get over it or reach this next stage. That's mind blowing. Yep. That is absolutely mind blowing. So these stages exist for people who are grappling with their own mortality, not people who have lost someone. Exactly. Which is a completely different mindset. And like, obviously very important and also grief, right? Like, but very different, very different situation. Right. And so what's the correlation between attachment style just inherently and grief? Well, that's a great question. So I, I thought about the attachment piece a lot because, you know, like I've said, my mom and I were super close. We had a great relationship. And then we also had a relationship that was layered with my caretaking responsibilities. So as much as she was a parent, and she definitely actively parented until the end, in some ways it was almost also like a child, mm-hmm. you know, because totally. I had been a caretaker to her in some regard since I was 13 years old. Mm. And so I wanted to understand, like, what is what does that do to your brain? Because fundamentally at the end of the day, like grief is something that I I don't want to say attacks, but grief is something that both our bodies and our brains have to create space for. And so I wanted to understand what is the impact of that on your brain? And also like, what is the impact of sharing an unconditional love relationship? with another human being on your brain. Because I, I I believed, my gut instinct was, when you have that kind of relationship, and also just generally, when you share unconditional love with another human being, you don't get over it when they die. Like that, like, like the fact that you loved them, and they loved you, and they treated you in certain ways, and you did things together, and you did things for them, and whatever, like, those things, like they have to leave some sort of an imprint on your brain that you then have to figure out how to accommodate for, not how to get over it. Cause like you're not going to have your brain magically wiped clean of all right. of these memories and experiences. And so that was what I started asking like researchers and what I started digging into. And ultimately, what I learned is the current leading theory around grief and loss and like how to deal with grief in the healthiest way is you should be trying to figure out what it looks like for you 
to continue your relationship with the deceased in a way that feels authentic and healthy for you. And it's called the continuing bonds theory. And it is connected to both our attachments and our relationships that are foundational in this way. So like someone who is one of yours, whether it's a parent, a spouse, a best friend, a child, whatever, like you're not going to get over it because like you don't, you don't get over sharing love with someone. Like you learn how to live differently. Um, and so that became the whole underlying thesis for grief is love, that body of work and that research. So what does that look like for you and your mom? Just to give some people an example, because mm. obviously everyone's relationship is different with their parents. So what does that continuation of that relationship look like? Yeah. So it's, it's a few things. So for me, like a big part of it is values oriented, mm-hmm. you know, like thinking through intentionally, like what were my mom's greatest values and the things that she really worked hard to instill in me and my sister and like how am I living up to those you know a big one with her was generosity so like always just being incredibly generous and like my parents had no money but it didn't matter like that like that is just who she was um the other thing is thinking about what it looks like to include her or to bring her along in some way with different things you know Mm -hmm. whether it was just going back to wedding planning, um, she was very much present in our wedding because of the things that we did to sort of honor her and to memorialize her, um, including little things like the inside of my dress had a little blue label with her initials that was actually made by a friend from a piece of like a jewelry bag that she'd had back in the day to like making a donation in her name to a breast cancer charity. It's also, you know, more recent things like we had to figure out what does it look like to bring my mom into this book tour and like this big moment, you know, launching grief is love this spring. So we kicked off publication week with pancakes with my son, because every Sunday, if she was healthy enough, like my mom was making us pancakes. And so that was the first time Bennett got to try pancakes she always insisted on decorating for christmas like within 24 to 48 hours of thanksgiving so like girl that's what we had to do this you know like that it's just like what like what works for you is what it's all about and so for me it's like what are the values how do i include her in a way that in my life in a way that brings her alive for, for brings her to life for people who haven't met her and like who never will like my husband and my son. I love that you give those examples because as we're approaching more holidays, we just finished one, you know, it can be something as simple as, you know, she would make these certain cookies. So like you make yeah. those and just those microscopic ways of, of just yeah. keeping their memory alive. Is, that's so profound to me. Does closure exist in grief and in mourning? That's a good question. I think that where you really want to achieve closure is around the end of someone's life. Mm -hmm. Like while I think I will always have to keep the door open to feelings of grief, whether they're, you know, positive, joyful, reflecting on a memory with my mom or, you know, crying in the shower. Like I think I'll always have to keep the door open to that. But for me, closure was all about getting as much out as possible to my mom, you know, making sure she knew how loved she was, how much I appreciated her, how much, how grateful I was for the role that like she played in making me the person that I am. Like, you know, I wanted that to be clear. I wanted her to end her life with as much peace as possible. So like for me, closure was a a big part of that. It was just like giving her that gift and like that space And then also, you know, immediately on the other side, doing everything that I could to honor her wishes, you know, throwing the best, most badass funeral and doing it our way and making sure that, you know, I walked away from that experience feeling like, oh, I did right by her. Like for me, like those were the activities that gave me closure because I don't think, I don't think there will ever be complete closure like on the relationship itself or on the grief that comes with it. Right. Grief is such a 
you know, it's a word that can mean so many different things. When you think of a relationship that's ending with a person that's Mm -hmm. still very much living, you think, okay, like there are all these buzzwords like closure. And I just wonder with grief, is there actually closure, you know, and and from your experience and from people that you've met, is there a difference between sudden death and something like a prolonged illness, like watching a loved one pass? I think about that all the time because I should add right around the time when my mom got sick with multiple sclerosis when I was in middle school, my best friend at the time, her and, you know, we grew up in the suburbs of New York City. Like Mm -hmm. what I'm about to describe, this is not something that happened where we grew up at at all. Her dad was school superintendent driving home from work, got into a fender bender with another driver. They got into an argument about the accident and that man pulled out a gun and shot him and killed him. Oh my God. And so I saw like very sudden death, like completely unexpected. You know, I mean, the guy was, gosh, if I was 13, like maybe he was in his late thirties. You know what I mean? Like, and I experienced that like very up close and personal, you know, like we were close enough friends that I was pulled out of school that day, you know, to call down to the principal's office, had to inform my parents who were also friends like with the family more broadly. He was Jewish. So like, you know, it was at the funeral the next day. Like it was like very much in my face and we stayed close throughout it. Um, and I, I have always said to her, to my friend uh, Jillian, that like, I think that that is worse. I say that having been through, you know, the other situation of, you know, long illness Because I feel like, at least in my case, like I had the opportunity to communicate the things to my mom that I wanted to communicate to her before she was no longer here. You know, like it wasn't perfect. She definitely died sooner than I was expecting. I thought I was going to at least have a couple more months. Um, But I was able to prepare with as much intention as possible. And so was she. And I just think like the very sudden loss of someone, like you don't, you don't get to do that. You know, like you don't have those moments where you can just be with someone and either, you know, listen to their concerns or, or even hear from them that they are like at peace with where their life is. And, and like the fact that I know that my mom died, like as satisfied as possible with her life, even though she spent a decent chunk of her adult life as a very sick person, like that makes it easier for me to deal with my grief and her loss. Right. There's some peace in that. Yeah. Yeah. I always find that so interesting because they're both the loss of someone, you know, and having not gone through either, you kind of think, God, what is, is one worse? Is one more? I think yes. Yeah. That's interesting. I really do. I really do. Like, yeah. So just kind of relating back to what we were just talking about, as someone, as I said, I've, I haven't experienced grief aside from a grandparent or people like that. And when I watch people grieving, particularly like now, I'm, like you said, I'm getting to the age where my friend's parents are starting to get sick and pass. But I had this a few friends who whose parents died early. And I think there's this very human emotion or need or want to protect yourself from that from feeling like that even though you know it's inevitable right that all these yeah. older people than me are going to die one day so i try to do little things right like i every time my dad calls i have to answer the phone because i'm like one day he's going to be dead and yeah. i'm not going to you know and i want to record my aunt talking because i just i know i'll want it one day do that right but there's all these things that kind of like make you think you have some semblance of control when you really have none So as I mentioned a little earlier, I actually now have a significant amount of friends whose parents are sick and or dying, and I watch them grapple with the fact that they know that this person, while they're not yet dead, that their death is on the horizon. And I love in your book that you talk about something called anticipatory grief, because I feel like this section of grief, the grieving you do before someone has died, but when you know that it is coming soon or is inevitable in the near future is a flavor of grief that isn't talked about nearly enough. So I was hoping you could explain to us what anticipatory grief exactly is. I would say anticipatory grief for me started the day that 
we got that diagnosis in the oncologist's office that it was stage four breast cancer. Yes. You know, because, because the thing with anticipatory grief is like you are living in a suspended state. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, like you're actually living in the space where this person could technically die any day. They probably won't, but they could. But you know, at a minimum that the expiration date is upon you. Like this is one of my friends, uh, mother-in-laws is currently dealing with stage four breast cancer and like the type of cancer where it's at, et cetera. You know, I talked to her the other day. She's like, we probably have a year, mm-hmm. you know, like they, like they are in it right now where technically a really bad infection of some kind or, you know, pneumonia or something like that could take this woman out next week. Um, but they probably don't have more than 12 months. And like, when you get down to knowing that like that's where you sit with someone you love like it is just it's really hard it's reality shaking like it just shakes every aspect of your and i have one of my best friends is dealing with that in real time the same exact thing and this is brings me to the next topic that i want to talk to you about which is being there for people who are grieving and or who are experiencing anticipatory grief because it's one of these things where all, her whole reality has shifted now. She was going to maybe wait a few years to get married. Now she's rushing to get married so her mom can be there, right? There are all these yeah. different things that she's – she wants her mom to see her switch jobs. She doesn't want her mom to die when she's in a job that she doesn't like. You know, there's all these things oh, that we God, try to – Oh, poor thing. You know, that, we, that she tries to control. And I just wonder, like, having gone through that yourself, so often I want to call her and say, like, how's your mom? And I do. But I wonder, like – and, and this kind of relates to people that are grieving as well, because I have friends who I was with over the holiday, and it was like six months since their dad died, right? And there's this moment where you are compelled to say something, right? You want to say, like, how how's your mom doing if someone's sick? Yeah. Or you want to say, how are you doing if someone's died? And then there's this weird thing. Like, I love to talk about hard things. Like, I don't shy away from that often. But I wonder... Am I reminding them of something that they, what if they're having a nice moment in their head and I bring them right back to the sad thing? So that's that's real. That's a concern I hear about all the time. Mm-hmm. But especially if you're talking about someone who just lost one of their primary people six months ago, they're like almost never going to be out of it, you know, and like not thinking of it. Right. And I think it can be very comforting, especially as more time passes, mm-hmm. for people to have you ask about their people. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that you fear the most is that like your person's going to be forgotten. And so continuing to ask and to talk about them. And, you know, like if if you're gonna be with these folks around Christmas time and you remember something about their dad, like sharing a memory, like, you know, like I love hearing other people talk about my mom because it's also the reminder that like her life mattered a lot beyond just our four person family. Um, So like, I would say never hesitate to bring it up. But the other thing that I will say for people trying to figure out how to support folks, whether it's through anticipatory grief or, after someone has passed away, you know, I think we all get caught up on like what to say and saying the right thing. And I think that's because nothing we can say is ever really going to be the right thing because the worst thing in the world has happened to them. Right. And like, as humans, we want to fix it. We want to right. And there's nothing you can do. Like, and I say that as like writer, grief advocate, person who's like dealing with grief constantly, like, there's no fix there there are no perfect words and i think for me when i think back on the loss of my mom or you know the loss of our pregnancy a few years ago i remember very little of what people said but what i remember most is what people did or in many cases like what people didn't do especially when they were the people you expected to show up and so my thing with grief support, whether it's anticipatory grief or, you know, following the event is to do something like to not worry as much about your words and to take action. So whether that's, you know, like my friend getting the blue patch made for my wedding dress um, or my girlfriend's, you know, my mom's birthday is February 18th. She died February 28th. So my girlfriends have nicknamed it fuck you February. And, you know, there's lots of checking in that happens during that time. There's little treats that get sent. Like they might buy us dinner on Uber Eats one night, you know, just because they know that like, 
at some point during that month, usually multiple points during that month, I'm just miserable. Uh, and so they want to do something to help because the thing about grief is the way that it works. And this is why I love geeking out on the science behind it. Like your brain, when you lose one of these critical foundational people, your brain is forced to like rewire itself to accommodate for that loss, to accommodate for the fact that like your dad isn't going to be calling you three times a day or, you know, like whatever. And that takes energy and it's exhausting, which means that there's just less mental and physical capacity for the rest of life. Mm. So whether it's walking someone's dog, taking care of their kids, sending a meal, or even just sending them a little treat that will bring a smile to their face, like do something because they are struggling. Right. No, I love that you say that because also so much of it is taking yourself out of it, not being so concerned about saying the wrong thing and definitely not putting the responsibility on the griever. You know, like I think so often people say, like, let me know if you need anything to check off their own little mental. Do not do that. Do Do not not do that. that, Right. Like because just to check off their own like, oh, I said I I checked in on her. But like I just put I just dumped all the responsibility on this grieving person. Or just saying things like, okay, I've heard on in movies, people say everything happens for a reason and people are left there being like, why did my, give me that reason, please, for the love of God, explain to me why my mom had to, you know, like these things yep. that are inexplicable don't happen for a reason or God gives his toughest battles to his toughest oh, soldier. Oh, Lord in heaven, stop with the God talk. Like unless you have a direct line to right? God yes. and he can tell you everything, like don't talk to me about it. Like yes. just stop. But like showing up and holding space and knowing that you might say something stupid or you might showing up is 99% of it. The person can sense if you're just like what your intention is, if you're trying to be there, even if you're stumbling over your words. So I think that's important that you say that because it is like one of those things that I think so many people are there for the, you know, if you're Jewish, you're sitting Shiva, people show up. Yes, I love that. But then those weeks following, the phone stops. What happens? Yeah, I know. It's really hard. And the thing is, I think for those of us who are in it, I I never expected anyone to have all of the right words. Mm-hmm. But I did expect, and thankfully, this is exactly what happened. Like I expected my people to show up and to help me figure it out. And that meant a bunch of 23, 24, 25-year-old girls planning a funeral together. Right. And that's just, and you will never forget that. Oh, God, no. God, no. No. They're amazing. That's incredible because, yeah, it is one of those things that it, grief is uncomfortable. But I think also, like, even if you come into someone's life after someone has passed, staying curious about that person, using that person's name, not being afraid because the chances are, like, so much of the time, my friend doesn't want to tell other people that her mom died, even though it's a fundamental part of who she is and her yeah. story, because of what it'll do to the other person. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really uncomfortable moment. Like, I, it took me, years to get comfortable saying like you know because you know at some point when you meet new people like it just comes up Mm -hmm, and most people will say I'm sorry I'm so sorry whatever and it took me a really long time like literally it was probably until like three or four years ago to stop saying like it's okay because like it's not okay like my mom's dead it sucks like right, right. <laughs> I would love you should for be her sorry to yes not, yeah like I would love for her to be alive and be helping me with this rambunctious 15 month old that we've adopted you know like right but it she's not here and so I've started saying thank you but like mm-hmm. it's it's it took legitimately a decade mm-hmm. before I stopped saying like it's okay mm-hmm. and because you you do have this instinct to catch the other person yeah, i don't want to make anybody else feel uncomfortable like, it makes me uncomfortable enough right all the responsibility lands on you so this yeah. last question i have is, <laughs> i usually try to end it in a more positive way but i just have to ask this because i know we're running out of time and i think this is what i'm experiencing with my friends around me who have had a, a an experience with loss is How do you deal with, you know, I don't know if your dad has moved on in the sense of like finding a new partner or something like that, but how do you deal with other people's grief taking a different road than yours? You know, like maybe your sister doesn't want to have any images of your mom at her wedding or, you know, like that kind of patience. So 
this is, uh, I mean, gosh, we could do like a whole conversation just on like grief in the context of family. We, I'm going to invite you back on. Just know I'm, I'm knocking at your door at the end of this. You're going to think you're done with me. You're not. This is just the beginning. I think the most important thing, and, and I struggled with this myself, the most important thing when it comes to grief in the context of families, and one of the most important things in general when it comes to grief is boundaries. Um, you know, like what you are okay with may not be the same as what your mother's okay with or what your brother's okay with. In my case, you know, how I honor my mom and what that looks like looks very different from my sister. And it also looks very different from my dad. Um, and that is okay. And like, it took a really long time for me to be okay with that. Um, I felt a lot of responsibility for the two of them and to like help care for the two of them, to support the two of them, which then meant I wasn't really caring fully for myself, which is just not productive. And so my big thing to folks now is like, be honest about what your needs are. And if they don't match someone else's needs, especially when it comes to the big things like your person's birthday or the holidays or the anniversary of their passing, that's okay. Like you, you have to do what feels right to you when it comes to your grief. And that may not be the same as what the rest of the family needs. And that's okay. Right. Down to little things. Like I'll never forget. Like I was, my mom, my uncle died when I was really young and my mom, he was her everything. And I remember saying to her when I was really young, like it was raining that day. And I was like, let's go see his grave. Cause that just seemed like something that we should do. And she, I don't know. I was like, I was so lost for what to say, even at that age. And, and she, I remember, I'll never forget. She said to me like, it's raining. Like, I don't want to think of him in the ground. Like that's not where Ooh. he is, you know? And it just blew my mind. Cause I was like, oh, this is just how people grieve differently. I just love everything you said. I had chills throughout this entire interview. I so appreciate you. And I'm serious about me knocking on your door because I really, we got to do this again because there's so much more I want to cover with you and you just have a wealth of knowledge and you're incredible. So thank you. No, this is great. We can definitely chat more. Thank you for your patience. I would love it. 